0: Is the Church Law Podcast where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders? I'm your host, Erika Cole, the Church Attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. I'm your host, Erika Cole, known as the Church Attorney. In my previous episode, I spoke with Dr. Galia Satos. He's a critical care doctor. At Johns Hopkins University, we discuss the faith community, vaccinations, and other hot topics involving healthcare and the church. If you didn't get a chance to listen, I'm including the link in the show notes. You should certainly check it out. Today, we're going to be discussing critical legal considerations in the post-COVID church. So today I'm going to share on critical legal considerations in the post-COVID church. So let's be honest, I recognize that we're calling this post-COVID. Of course, we were all in the in the world when we found out that we were facing a real crisis, COVID-19, not words that we had heard before. But um, I recall that our governor came on TV and said that we were going to basically shut down for two weeks. The kids were coming home. I have two sons and my husband and I are trying to figure out, okay, how's this going to work for the next two weeks? And uh, here we are, obviously, quite a bit more than two weeks later. And COVID has created new issues for the world and certainly for churches and the faith community. One of the big things we have seen is COVID-related litigation matters, and frankly, this is going to continue. I won't get too deep in the weeds because Richard Hammer is going to be talking about uh, some of the litigation-specific things, but obviously we have found that there have been challenges around mandatory shutdowns and how that has perhaps disproportionately impacted some communities, the church community perhaps. Um, A lot of the cases that have come before the courts so far have really found that as long as there is a balance in the approach of who's shut down and um, that there is not that disparate impact, most of the time those challenges have not been, been favorable to churches. But again, these things are going to continue as we in the legal world know that generally case law is not developed quickly. It's developed over time. And COVID, um, even though it's been with us for a while in terms of how we may feel about it, from a legal standpoint, it does take years often to for cases to matriculate through the court and for us to have clarity about the case law there. And some of the things have frankly changed, right? In the beginning, we were talking about mandatory shutdowns and what that might mean. And then later on, we were talking about mandatory mask wearing and social distancing and and requirements around how many people can gather and now really we're looking at a lot of issues a lot of the questions I'm getting from clients surround mandatory vaccinations from employers and this can involve schools universities hospitals etc and we know that HIPAA is not applicable because one of the questions I've gotten is well, Can someone require vaccinations at church, right? Is that a requirement and is that a violation of HIPAA? What we know is that HIPAA is applicable for actual health care practitioners, right? So it's applicable. This is a law that is governed, that has requirements specifically for hospitals and the medical arena, which obviously churches are not. Also, we know that as relates to protected classes and information, vaccination status is not, at least currently, a protected class. And so it really is a little bit of the the wild, wild west that we're kind of dealing with uh, right now. Um, And what I have seen is that the requirements from mandatory vaccination for employers run the gamut from maybe simply an individual notifying his or her supervisor that I have for either healthcare reasons or medical reasons, which are the only two exemptions currently for mandatory vaccinations. I'll focus on the religious exemption. So an individual may just tell verbally his or her employee um, employer that I'm not taking the vaccination because of religious reasons, and that may suffice for that employer. I've seen that all the way to the gamut of literally, I received a four page document of a religious accommodation request form and single faced with all kinds of policy statements, instructions, expectations, and employee acknowledgement, signing off by the supervisor, the employee. And I have also run into issues where an individual employee has come to his or her church asking for support for that religious waiver. And I've got to tell you, um, that's become a big issue. And if your church doesn't currently have a policy of how to address this, I encourage you to give some thought to it. Um, I was recently able to share in an article um, about the considerations here, and one of the big matters is whether the church as a community takes a stand against vaccinations. and what does that mean right? Are we talking about the board? Are we talking about the lead pastor? are we talking about some other governance committees? so these are really areas that many churches are are toiling with. and that also touches on getting back to church. Last year, we, ran a poll uh, with with you who attended. And at that time, of a full year ago, two-thirds of churches were back into in-person meetings. And at this point, um, I, I would anticipate that that's well over 90-plus percent. COVID has also created new issues surrounding digital matters. And again, we have a panelist who will be able to talk into this a bit more But I have run into issues about intellectual property when it comes to streaming services. And I'd be curious, maybe if you put into the chat, like what kind of, how did you stream your services and do you continue with hybrid services? So even though many churches have returned, it's been my experience that many churches, if they didn't already have a hybrid service, then they are providing that opportunity, that option now. So when it comes to streaming, there are a lot of intellectual property considerations around what can be streamed. If you are streaming both the preaching portion as well as the singing portion, like what have you done to ensure that you are protecting the intellectual property of the folks who have written the songs and making sure that um, the streaming service maintains confidentiality, right? When people are sharing information, if there are any kind of prayer requests that has detailed information. I think we also saw issues around the digital divide and not just on the side of the church, right? So there were some churches that were a bit more prepared. Maybe they already had an app. Maybe they were already used to streaming. Maybe they already had the camera, the equipment, etc. cetera, but many did not. The same is true for the attendees. Some churches had were a part of communities that were very much Wi-Fi and tech savvy and some not so much. And I also want to raise this issue of online churches, right? So we've had this whole new language that's been created. So the online hosts or the chat host, I often heard reference, even when I was attending online church. So these are new positions even that churches are engaging for or hiring for. So what about the question of online membership or online church? The Internal Revenue Service in the past had not actually approved an application for a radio-only church. This was a church that applied for tax-exempt status through the Internal Revenue Service, and they weren't meeting in person. It was merely connecting people by radio, and that application for tax-exempt status was denied. The whole concept of an online-only church has not been something that the IRS has traditionally viewed favorably. So for me, a person who has represented churches and tax-exempt organizations for over 23 years, it's a very interesting time because now, obviously, there were months where churches could only meet online. And I personally completed several tax-exempt status applications during that time, and I'm pleased to say that those applications were favorably approved. Having said that though, these clients had intentions of meeting in person when the laws allowed. So we're really going to keep a close eye on what it means to have an online church. What we know for sure right now is that if your church actually has a physical meeting space and you create in additional to that an online church, the IRS has viewed that favorably. The real question that we're going to be keeping a close eye on now that I'm going to be looking for is whether the IRS will change its views on having online-only church to be continued. What we know for sure is that adaptability is key. Surely I hope we'll never have another global pandemic in our lifetime, but I know that we are all taking from this What does it mean to be able to adapt, to be able to adjust, to be able to change quickly um, when the circumstances, the environment requires it? These are uh, windows of opportunity, I believe, for many churches to ensure that they have provisions. We can't predict the future, right? But if something were to occur where we could not meet in person for whatever reason, It would be critical that we have provisions in our governance documents that allow for meeting virtually. And so let me just take one step back to say governance documents from a legal standpoint would mean your Articles of Incorporation for any church that's made the decision to be incorporated, and it also means your bylaws. I recognize that some churches call it a constitution and bylaws. From a legal standpoint, I would generally bifurcate those things. And the Constitution, we would generally see as anything that's your statement of faith, what your beliefs are about baptism, for example, about communion, the sacraments, etc. Your bylaws are things like what matters need to be bought before the congregation for a vote, or if it's a congregational church versus an elder-led church, etc., so making sure that those bylaws are up to date. Um, I often run into circumstances where pastors, being wonderful people of God, share with their fellow pastors, right? They may say, well, these are the bylaws for my church. You can use them. And While you might use it as a point of reference, how one church operates just like a home, right? Not, No two homes operate exactly the same way. Now, if you're an organization that comes under the umbrella of a denomination, there may be more um, synchronicity in that regard. Let me move on to state actions. So the many states found exactly what we just saw. Many organizations did not have a provision for virtual meetings. And so there was state action in many jurisdictions that where the state steps in to say, If you don't have a provision in your governance documents, here's how you could have a virtual meeting and the state made those provisions. And you should also know that every state has rules around what it means to create a legal entity that is a church, as well as what it means to govern oneself. So we can see that governance matters even more now than ever because we can see that things can happen quickly right change can happen quickly and we also know that there needs to be someone or at least a small group of people if not more that know exactly what's in your governance documents all right employment issues want to move on to talk about employment issues i have to say when it comes to activity and and questions that i receive as an attorney who's practice focuses specifically on representing churches and ministries. Employment matters matter. (laughs) They've come up a lot. So first, let's talk about this return to work. The return to work has been a question for every employer and every employee, right? So obviously, churches want to ensure safety first. But beyond that, they also want to ensure that there can be a level of functionality. So when we have dealt with issues of people working remotely, it becomes increasingly important that we have systems that allow for the protection of information. So for example, I know that a lot of you who registered for the conference are in the area of finance, right? So if the church is taking collections or if there are people who have signed on to donate regularly, like how those donations are received and how that information is managed is particularly important, important period. But when people are working remotely, it can be more difficult to manage that information. We also know that we are living in what they call the gig economy. Right. So, um, whether that is Uber or whether it's Grubhub or any of those kinds of options where you order something from an app, people are very accustomed to being able to sign on and, and sort of work at their own pace, work at their own leisure. And we're not going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. I believe. Uh, So while people have been debating like this return to work and what that might look like, I think that those organizations that create a level of flexibility and make sure that there is conversation that includes all the players, I think are going to be the most successful. And we also have heard this term, she session, right? During this time of many women leaving the workforce, um, which has been connected often to the fact that there was no child care and schools were closed, et cetera. So having those ongoing discussions and figuring out how we can make work work for, um, for both sides, I think is going to be very important. Um, mandatory vaccinations at church. Um, I think I touched on this a little bit, but this whole issue of how we, if we have employees come back, What kind of policy do we have related to safety matters? So if people are working in cubes or whatever that environment looks like, how do we make sure people remain safe? And what kind of policy, written policy, does the church have that makes people know that they can safely return? And many organizations, many churches have asked me the question around, can we mandate vaccinations? And I think that we've seen clearly that the law does allow for that. But there are reasons, you know, that that you will have to consider within your own organization whether that's right for you. And then, as I've referenced, these employment issues about working remotely, it is still important, albeit more difficult, I would say, for the church as the employer to ensure that while working remotely, an employee is still maintaining the level and standard of duty that is required, just as if the employee were working on site. And again, I recognize that it's less; it's not easy to do, but it is what we understand from from the law. All right, I'm going to move on and talk about money matters. I will say that um, again: there certainly were huge concerns. I'm sure you felt it about what would happen financially for churches, especially during the time of the shutdown. And by God's grace, amazingly, many churches found that they could still operate um, and they still were able to receive donations in various mechanisms. And because expenses went down so much, they were able to, to function well. I'll also mention many, I had many clients apply for and receive the PPP loan, as well as at this point, loan forgiveness. And for many churches, that did move the needle in a favorable way. So let's talk about this cryptocurrency in the virtual collection plate. So earlier this year, maybe some months ago, Bitcoin is probably one of the most well-known forms of cryptocurrency, but a single Bitcoin was worth $55,000. And so we're told that according to CNBC, if you had invested $100 in Bitcoin in its beginning over a decade ago, you would have been able to buy 1,000 Bitcoins. But now, at this point, at the time this article is written, that $100 would be worth more than $55 million. So um, obviously, it's a big area of discussion. Cryptocurrency is obviously not actual money. And because people have gotten so accustomed to exchanging money virtually, um, (laughs) cryptocurrency has become more and more popular. While Bitcoin doesn't involve a bank or the government, it's really known as peer-to-peer currency. And so it's not regulated, which is what makes a lot of people uncomfortable. At the same time, its value seems to continue to rise. And we're seeing well-known companies actually buy into it. So there are there there are companies now that will actually allow individuals to make donations in Bitcoin or in cryptocurrency, and those donations transfer to the church. One of the other big areas, clearly, <laughs> where COVID has made such a dramatic impact is around property matters or real estate matters. And I know that I'm running out of time, so I'll try to move through this quickly. So for churches that own property, obviously much time was spent outside of the property. And that really raised the question of, do we need as much of a real property footprint, right? Because so much has gone online. So many people remain online. And I think many churches have the question about how many people will ultimately come back. What will the church look? like a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. There's also this question about tax exempt status if the church uses the property for other reasons, right? If they want to expand their usage, maybe they want to share property with other churches. So those are some things that, you know, must be taken into account. And then for churches that rent, you know, there were lease issues. Can I get out of this lease? You know, I had churches that have a 10-year lease. Do we want to remain here? Is this a footprint that we think is going to be right for our future going forward? And then this question of force majeure. Um, A lot of organizations, so everything from major restaurant chains to, you know, what we see in the mall, et cetera, we're making those same arguments, like force majeure. It's because it's a force outside of ourselves, namely COVID and the pandemic, that we should not remain liable for these lease matters. And, and again, these are legal issues that are going to continue going forward. Church mergers, the financial uncertainties, the steady and significant decrease in church attendance, and also for opportunities. Many churches are finding that there are great opportunities and maybe expanding their footprint across jurisdictions, maybe into a whole nother state, maybe into another county, another city, that a church merger is very useful, a very useful tool. But there is a clear and distinct process of moving from one stage to the next when it comes to church mergers. And I have seen mergers work with incredible success, and it's one of the things I love being able to do for for my clients. I'll also use this as an opportunity to mention that I wrote with Church Law and Tax a four part series on whether a church merger is right for you. So check that out for all the details. So I know I've given you a lot to consider when we think about legal considerations in the post-COVID church. The truth is, we don't know exactly what things are going to look like going forward. So I'm also interested in hearing your thoughts. Feel free to share your comments, your questions with me. I plan to read each of them. And if you have a question, maybe I'll get to answer it on an upcoming episode. Reach me at contact at takethenextcall.com. And subscribe to the Church Law Podcast to get each new episode and join us on the journey. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the US legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.